0: Chapter 4 of The Northern Spy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Northern Spy by J. Thomas Warren. Chapter 4 Family Records Pistols and Coffee. It is now proper, in order that the reader may clearly comprehend the thread of our story, that we should narrate a bit of history, or rather should give a brief account of certain events which occurred in this section of country many years previous to the opening of our tale. There were two fine plantations lying upon the left bank of the Savannah River and separated but a short distance from each other. These were owned, respectively, by Henry saint leger and Ralph Montague, two men of wealth and position. But if these two gentlemen were blessed with the possession of money, they were likewise cursed with that most mischievous of things, a bad temper. Bad tempers are very likely to get their possessors into trouble, and so, very naturally, these two planners were always at loggerheads. Something was always occurring to stir up and keep in existence an angry spirit which at last grew to such a pitch that at a horse race in the neighborhood, words came to blows, and the two men separated, vowing dire vengeance on each other. saint Leger, who, to tell the truth, was by far the most quarrelsome in disposition, imagined that he had received the worst of this public set-to, and concluded to have his neighbor's life and revenge therefor. So, the next time they met in public, he very deliberately walked up to Ralph Montague and spat in his face. This was a deadly insult, and Montague was furious. He at once sent a challenge to Saint Leger, which was exactly what the cunning fellow desired, for it gave him the choice of weapons, and he was a capital pistol shot. So one fine morning, these two chivalrous men met in a pretty little shady nook on the river bank with their seconds and surgeons, and popped away at each other. To the astonishment of all present, Montague escaped unhurt, while saint leger received a bullet through the arm above the elbow, which shattered the bone completely. So badly, indeed, was the limb crushed that the surgeons decided upon immediate amputation, and Henry saint leger was driven home minus his right arm. If he was angry before, he was furious now. He invoked vengeance in the names of all the heathen deities and Roman saints, for saint Leger was a devout Catholic, as he claimed, although his actions sadly belied his profession, upon the head of Montague and his family, and swore with ponderous oaths that he would have ample revenge. Montague, however, although a hasty man, was not one who, if left alone, would nurse his anger and cherish an old grudge. He therefore, after a while, sent a servant to inquire after the health of his late adversary, to express his regrets at the unfortunate termination of their late duel, and to say that he was anxious for conciliatory measures. Saint Leger received this messenger in a summary manner. That is, he ordered him to be kicked from the house, while he himself crawled to a window and called out to the servant in an angry voice. Express my regrets, you villain, to your master, and tell him I am sorry he did not give me the opportunity to boot him downstairs himself. Of course, self-respect, if nothing else, compelled Montague after this to let his spunky neighbor alone. In due course of time, saint legers arm healed, and he directly sent a challenge to his foe, which, however, Montague refused to accept. Thereupon, Saint Leger posted him for a coward, and by a course of tantalizing policy, he finally drove Montague into accepting the challenge. They met upon the same spot as before, and with equally strange results. The first fire they both missed, the second both were hit. Montague received his adversary's bullet along the side of his cheek, leaving only a disfiguring scratch, while Saint Leger lost his left arm. The unfortunate man was driven home, so overpowered with mortification and rage, that a dreadful fever set in, and for weeks his life was despaired of. At last, however, the fury of the disease succumbed to the skill of the attending physicians, and saint leger became convalescent, and after a while recovered his usual health. He was, however, a helpless cripple, and doomed to pass the remainder of his days in solitude and misery, which he did nursing his wrath and hatred, and longing and praying for some means of obtaining revenge upon his enemy. saint Leger was a widower, having buried his wife some two years previous to his first duel with Montague. He was the father of two promising sons, Marcus and George, aged respectively at this time, 18 and 16. Marcus, the elder, was emphatically a chip of the old block, impetuous and vindictive, and he at once took up the quarrel of his father, with all the hasty ardor of youth and hot blood. George, his brother, was of rather a different turn of mind. He was not so fiery nor vindictive, although a boy of much pride and spirit. While Marcus gave his attention chiefly to the plantation, and prided himself on the blood of the horses and cattle on the estate, George devoted himself to study and reading. The father naturally held Marcus in greater esteem, since he saw himself duplicated in the boy, but was also proud of the accomplishments of George, whom he determined to educate for a profession. One day, saint leger was walking in a retired part of his estate, meditating upon the utter inutility of all of his plans for being revenged upon his enemy, when he was startled by the report of a pistol. The sound was so near that he gave an involuntary shudder, lest the weapon might have been fired at himself. A hedge separated him from the possessor of the pistol. He stooped down and looked through. He saw his oldest son Marcus busy loading a revolver. The cartridges were soon placed in proper position, and the young man raised the weapon and fired six times in rapid succession, each ball splintering a pine board set against a palmetto tree distant some thirty yards. There, said Marcus in an audible tone. "Old oh, Montague, I wish that board were you. I'd give this whole plantation for such a chance at you. The father was startled and walked rapidly away. His mind was a confusion of thoughts. A new idea had entered his brain, and he was revolving it to see what would come out of it. Why not, he soliloquized. The boy made six good shots. With a little practice, he will hit the center every time. And as for Pluck, Heaven knows he don't lack that. But, ah, he might be—no, I won't think it. It was my bad luck. Luck always changes, and this boy may yet set things to rights. Yes, yes, it shall be so. He hates Montague, and he has the same idea in his young mind that agitates my own. By Jove, it shall be thus. Montague, my boy, will revenge the father. Ah, that he will, that he will. It was not long after this that a full understanding was had between the father and son, and the latter at once entered with alacrity into all the projects proposed by the former. He at once procured a choice revolver and began practicing daily. A master in the use of the sword was also employed, and every means possible brought into requisition, secretly of course, to render Marcus a proficient in the use of both these arms. The result was that in a short time he equalled the master himself. The youth was impetuous, and ardently desired at once to try an issue with Montague, but Henry St. Leger was too wary a man to give his consent. He determined to wait until the boy's manhood should be developed and his muscles should acquire more solidity, strength, and endurance. Marcus chafed under the restraint, but nevertheless was obedient. Meantime, George had progressed with his studies. One day, he received a letter from an uncle on his mother's side who lived in England, urging him to visit them. The result of this letter was that George was sent to England to remain a number of years and to pursue his studies. Henry saint leger seldom wrote to George, never himself indeed, for the loss of his arms prevented that, only occasionally dictating a letter. But Marcus often wrote, Invariably adding as a postscript, Montague still lives, and I am not content. Keep up your sword and pistol practice, for if I fail, the work is yours. So five years passed away. At last, George received, one day, a letter sealed with black. It was addressed in an unknown hand. Greatly agitated, he tore open the envelope and devoured the contents. His face grew pallid, and his hands trembled so that he could hardly hold the letter. After the first burst of grief succeeded a flow of passion, and the usually quiet, reserved student raged like a seething volcano. His roommate at college stood aghast, but finally ventured to ask him the cause of his anger. "'My brother is dead, slain in a duel at the hands of a monster. Oh, God, I shall die! My head seems bursting into a thousand fragments!' Then, striking his clenched hand upon his aching forehead, he strode the room like a madman. Yes, I'll go home by the next steamer. What will you do? ventured his companion. Do, do, exclaimed George in a frenzy. Did you ask me what I should do? Yes, I will do this. And the excited young man bent over, and in a voice husky with the greatness of his anger and low, he hissed rather than spoke. I'll commit murder. Yes, murder. The passion was too much for his sensitive mind, and with a gasp the youth fell to the floor in a fit. A surgeon was called who bled him, and he was put to bed. A severe attack of brain fever followed, and it was three months before George was able to resume his usual pursuits. Meantime, he had received many letters dictated by his agonizing father, who seemed anxiously to await his son's return. A postscript always was added, you have a double crime to avenge. Keep up your sword and pistol practice. The letter which had so affected George contained the particulars of the sad affair. It seemed that instigated by the father, Marcus had insulted Ralph Montague and found him quite ready to take up the quarrel. In fact, Montague began to suspect the frequent visits of the fencing master to the house of St. Leger, and from other discoveries that he made He concluded that there would be more trouble shortly. He therefore made up his mind that if he must kill the entire family before he could rest in peace, the sooner he began the work, the better. So he too practiced himself in the use of the sword and pistol, and when young Marcus insulted him, he promptly sent a challenge. The two met, fiery, impetuous youth and calm, reserved middle age. The weapons were pistols. At the first fire, a singular fatality developed itself. Montague was unhurt, and Marcus's right arm dropped shattered at his side. An exclamation of surprise burst from all, and the aged saint Leger, who was present to gloat over the anticipated death of his old enemy, cried aloud in his fury. The young man, however, motioned back those who were about to approach, thinking the affair was over, and cried in a loud tone, "Back, back!" It is life or death now. We will settle it forever now. And seizing his revolver in his left hand, he deliberately began walking towards his adversary and discharging his weapon as he advanced. With the same deadly determination, Montague replied, You will, sir, and he too moved forward. The spectators stood aghast yet dared not interfere. The last barrel of each revolver was emptied while the two men were yet ten feet apart. At the last shot, Montague reeled and fell upon his knee, steadying himself with his hand. A shout of defiance rose to the lips of Marcus, but it never passed them, for with his hand upon his breast, he fell prone to the green sward. The spectators and the surgeons hastened to the relief of the injured men. Marcus was dying, a ball having penetrated the heart, while his adversary was almost insensible and bleeding profusely from several wounds. His injuries, however, although severe and deep, did not prove mortal, and within six months he was himself again. Henry saint Leger was almost crazed with grief. He daily visited the green grave of his brave but rash son, and there, on bended knees, he called down imprecations too awful for repetition upon the house and family of Ralph Montague, and then he dictated fierce and angry letters to his remaining son in England. Come home, George, and bring your pistol with you, was their burden. These letters had a powerful influence over the mind of George St. leger From a frank, open-hearted, joyous youth full of life and the vivacity of early manhood, he became a gloomy, misanthropic being and seemed to have given up his naturally strong powers of mind entirely to the laying of plans for revenge. He now seemed to hate Montague with the combined fury of father and brother. Before he recovered from the illness consequent upon the reception of the terrible news, civil war had broken out in the United States, and when he landed in New York, he found that it was impossible to reach his home, either in person or by letter. His patriotic heart led him to take sides at once with the government, and he tendered his services and was accepted. From an appointment as a lieutenant, he rose soon to be a captain and was detached as an aide upon the staff of a prominent general. During four years of hard service, he had proved his worth in the Great West, and when the legions of the fiery Sherman turned their faces towards the sea, George St. legers heart leaped for joy. He would soon reach home and vengeance. About the time the army reached Millen, pivoting upon which it swung around southward and moved in parallel columns to the sea, it became important to send certain communications to either Admiral Dahlgren or General Foster at Beaufort, which lay 70 miles to the left. Captain saint leger volunteered to undertake the mission, as he knew the country well in his earlier days. So he received his orders, and on the evening of the 5th of December, he left the rear of the 15th Corps, and disguised as a rebel cavalry captain, started on his dangerous journey of nearly a hundred miles, Through a section of country thickly infested with rebels, having adopted the fictitious name of Captain Maurice Hoffman. How he succeeded, the reader knows. End of chapter 4. Recording by Colleen McMahon.